Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optotheology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back. With This is the last episode of 2023. This is it. And then wow. we move into 2024. Not much will change. Um, I listened to your episode with Compton, Jared Compton. Yeah. I thought it was good. Yeah, I like Jared. He's I a liked, really cool um, guy. I think trying to conceptualize the apostasy passage yeah. in Hebrews chapter six mm-hmm. relative to the themes of the wilderness. Yeah. I felt like was helpful. Right. I felt like he dodged the theological question hmm. because okay. it's kind of like, okay, does, but wait, could, did the Jews in the desert lose their salvation? That is the yeah. coming out of Egypt and going into Israel. Right. Like basically right. you moved it into the metaphor, which is yeah. clever and, and exegetical. Like it's biblical, right? Yeah. You're, you're right. using the metaphor to think through the theological question. Right. But, but hmm. to me, that's just like, well, that really just means we got to go back and interpret the old Testament thing. You had people mm-hmm. who came out of Egypt who mm-hmm. didn't make it into Israel. Yeah. I mean, everybody who came How, out of Egypt, Oh, didn't make it into right, the promised land. R- right. That's right. And so you're like, so, how does that parallel Christians have always right. thought that paralleled salvation hmm. to what extent does that parallel right. the question? Can you lose your salvation? Yeah, right? there was this level of that. And we only had an hour and a half. We were going to talk about way more and he's, he wants to continue to come on Optive, you know, so every couple months he'll come back on because he's always just, I think he has a more ideas of things to talk about. Yeah. And he's, a, I think he's a really cool guy, but I was wondering, I was kind of like, okay, this, this is obviously a, a really good way to, interpret this and i think it can work if you're a calvinist you know to make yourself mm-hmm. to feel comfortable about it and I, I like as of right now it's a it's a pretty good interpretation i was yeah. in the same room i was like okay you're like wait th- that's too easy it's a bit yeah. of a metaphoric yeah. it's it seems it's in some ways kind of like jordan peterson's like a, a kind of a if you parallel this back and you look at the overall structure and the metaphor of what's happening here then and I thought it was helpful the phenomenological thing versus the ontological thing, yes. but again it doesn't say that explicitly. Right, but it's like Compton's view is the same as mine, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, the way the way I say it because people have told me not to use those big words is <laughs> there's a pastoral approach, oh, and there's a theological approach. Yeah, theological yes. approach is what's happening out there. That's ontology, yeah, right? Right, and then pastoral approach is like what's happening with the person. Right. Which is a psychological approach or if, as you look right. at them, right. a phenomenological approach, what's the phenomenon, what's going yeah. on with them. Right. And that phenomenologically you can lose your salvation, but ontologically or theologically, you can't. God keeps you. He, yeah. If you're, if you're saved, you'll be set. You'll be right. saved at the end. So it's the same. He, I mean, yeah. he and I have the same view. And yeah. The argument comes back to what he said. He's like, if you only had this passage in Hebrews six, you might decide you can lose your salvation. Yeah. It's the fact that there are these other passages and then we engage in what's called yeah. canonical interpretation. Yeah. We take oh, all the relevant passages and we work them in with each other, which is called yeah. systematic theology. Systematic right? theology, right. And yeah. he said, when you do that, you have to take into account the passage to say you can't lose your salvation. Mm-hmm. And that has to be your backstop. Mm-hmm. So then when you interpret this, those two have to, you have to bring those together as much as you can. Yeah. And then you guys basically said, maybe you can't rationally mm-hmm. on the levels in which we're working in the way we can understand yeah. it. And so maybe we're just stuck with both of these passages and right. reading them carefully, which is essentially my view too. And I right? thought that he was, yeah, I thought that some Calvinists he talked to and they're just like, no, 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 it makes perfect logical sense. You're just stupid if you can't understand it. I thought he was charitable to say mm-hmm. this actually could go. Like it, it's it's mysterious enough that it, you, you just, you have to accept it as it is in some ways and you can't fully understand what's what it is. So I just got done reading last night, the great divorce for, I have a book club every Wednesday morning. 
Right. And we're going to talk about that on this podcast. Yeah. Cause now, cause I had to read the end of the great divorce and chapter five last night of this book. So I feel like I'm like a, like a schizophrenic right now. Like I, yeah, you're, you were chest deep in the Anglophiles for sure. Yeah. Right. And, and like the end of the great These divorce aren't is schizophrenic like schizophrenic though. I mean, the great divorce no, no, is, no. is a romance and this book is about romanticism. No, no, I agree. I think I'm just uh, schizophrenic because I like, like the end of the great divorce is like overwhelming. It's, I felt like over, like emotionally overwhelming to me in a, in a lot of ways and somewhat theologically overwhelming the idea that hell is is was small the whole time like that was little yeah the crack mm-hmm. of the earth and that and then the, the the large lady who's talking with her like ex her husband from earth, yeah. earth it, was, it was like i think i was just like okay i need to like take a couple minutes to think about that but then it was like nine o'clock and i had to read this and so i read this and then i was like okay and there's just a lot of stuff but yeah no all that to say jared is awesome and we're gonna have him on more and and i think i want to keep having conversations about that hebrew 6 passage because i think there's more even to say about it. i'd be glad to give you some stuff to push him on and the fact that he's spent most of his career thinking about hebrews yeah i mean that book is my church had to stop me in Florida because I was teaching through it, and they were like, "You gotta, you gotta keep moving. Like, we can't really, yeah." Because I was, it was like a Wednesday night Bible study, but they were like, yeah, "But that's are like, we ever gonna finish this book?" I was like, "In three years, why would you want to?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, I it's love like, are we ever gonna finish making love? It's yeah. like, I mean, why would you? Are you <laughs> yeah. trying to get done? I mean, right, right, right. That's I loved. I I love Hebrews. I think it's. I think there's so much ink spilled on Romans, which is a great book, but I think you never hear about people talking about Hebrews. I think it's very confusing. And so yeah. if you, you look into it. I think it's the it, authorship question. I think if we were hundred yeah. percent sure the author of Hebrews, that that would be. People would be more interested in it. I think so. That's so dumb. But Hebrews is harder to interpret, I it's, think, than Romans. Yeah, it's in the Bible, man. Yeah. But okay. So, you know, we've been doing this podcast for, I think, four or five years now. Did you know that? No. So that's, that's another thing too. So now going into 2024, I think it's been four years or five. We started in 2019. So sometime, almost five years. Yeah, I mean, hopefully I've matured a lot since we started. I do. If I go, I sometimes can't even listen to my first podcast. I sound like an idiot. Yeah. I like can't even think of questions. Anyways. Uh, yeah. Well, Charles Spurgeon said you should always keep the first sermons you preach as a pastor so that five years later you can go back and weep over them. <laughs> Did you do that? No, but I could. Yeah. Were they that bad? Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't to preach, first... I don't re-preach sermons from Florida. I listened. Yeah, that's true. I listened to your first uh, thing, your first sermon at High Point online. Mm-hmm. about the gospel was it the prodigal son you, you preached on the prodigal yeah, son. yeah i did a straight keller version of prodigal yeah. son mm-hmm. i thought that was good yeah so, yeah I, I, was, I was eight years into preaching well yeah. i mean i was more like yeah. more like 11 years into preaching at that point right you were so you even were my intense. early sermons here i had just had time to cut my teeth yeah anyways we're going to be talking about orthodoxy again this is chapter five of orthodoxy we kind of did like a a a general crappy one through four in the last podcast Mm -hmm. where we kind of talked about chapters one through four there's you get to the point with these books where like you could keep talking forever and ever and ever and Mm -hmm. you won't really scratch the surface and so yeah they suggest a lot right right a lot of this is meant to get people to actually go buy the book and read it themselves Mm -hmm. i don't like i i think there's you find so much. I mean, people did do that with the other one, the Pilgrim's Regress. And I want them to do that with this book and we can continue to talk about books. Yeah. I mean, so Tim Keller almost like almost made a living as a public theologian by translating Lewis to people, you know, <laughs> and this, this book and Chesterton's work, there was a, a, um, an apologist that ended up wreathed in controversy, uh, at the end of his life, Ravi Zacharias. Yeah. Um, but people forget that for whatever he was doing behind the scenes with women in mm-hmm. um, Southeast Asian countries or whatever. Right. Um, 
he was he was one of the most successful apologists of a generation from yeah. probably 91 to 2006 or something yeah he was i mean he would go to universities and it was standing room only right and yeah. a lot of those people were not believers a lot of them were believers but a yeah. lot were not and he was talking to people and he, essentially he was doing orthodoxy i mean he was taking mm. chesterton and a bunch of lewis yeah. and translating it for people and and yeah. being really um personable whilst doing it and being Indian. Yeah. I mean, it was there, his race had something to do with it. Like yeah. he was, he was an Indian guy and yeah, had a kind of a, an, an, an India British accent, you know? Yeah. That's messed up. <clears throat> like, I don't get, I get how that happens. Obviously he's like super famous. He was like one of the most oh, famous you mean the, the sexual stuff, stuff with the girls. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, you know, I was surprised not to hear anything about Billy Graham. I was like, a, you know, but he seems point, like, you'd... yeah. Yeah, I mean, Billy Graham did a bunch of stuff to keep himself grounded. Yeah. I think with Zacharias, one of the things that people don't understand, and you could pick this up because I like, I like lived through that. Like I was, I was listening to ta like cassette tapes of him in the nineties. That's wow. And um, and like he like almost like his books and stuff like were very integral in me getting through public university. Really? Because I didn't just survive. Like I like intellectually engaged with the professors yeah. consistently and the smartest students on my campus, which wasn't a very smart campus, but almost no campuses are yeah. that smart, as smart as we think maybe. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so he was really integral. And yeah. so, so there's a sense in which like, this is a person, Zacharias would have been the closest thing to a father in the faith for me. Trying to think of who, like who would be like him today yeah. in Christianity. I don't know. Uh, yeah. like John it, Piper. Things I have don't gotten know. a little more diverse now. Yeah. But yeah. I'd be like a Piper. Or a he's like or more like theological though. He's not as e yeah, I feel like Ravi was even like he was an evangelist apologist. Yeah. It would be like I guess Bill Craig, Bill William Lane Craig. Oh yeah, happening. So yeah. I, so one of the things I noticed early on was he would drop these comments here and there about stuff he couldn't do because of back pain. Mm. And um, you also see this with people who fly a lot too. If they yeah. have back pain, they really, really, really struggle. And so, um, it, it was very evident that as early as in the early nineties, he was struggling with like a very acute, very strong back pain. And wow. you'll notice that some of the women he first got involved with who made some of these claims were like massage therapists. Yeah. That's what a lot of mm -hmm. them were. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of them in Southeast Asia, I don't think it's probably started with him yeah. going off and just trying to get prostitutes in Thailand. Yeah. I he think probably he was, was trying to get his back fixed. Yeah. He's probably trying to get R and R and that kind of stuff. And then, then he started to believe like that since this was his calling, that God was okay with him, do, like he was like David or Solomon or something like that, where he yeah. could just do. But yeah. those yeah. guys were getting married. I mean, I mean, David effed up, but like, yeah, I mean, Dave, but David had four or five wives in a bunch. Yeah, thirteen concubine. I, I don't remember the number, but I remember. <laughs> I guess concubine. What does concubine mean? It's basically like a prostitute that's just yours. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. A, never I mean, mind then. I guess yeah, they yeah, they weren't so, married. Okay. I, I, so, and so like, wow. I mean, Zacharias in one sense like wasn't. A hundred percent wrong. Yeah. That like God will overlook sin in some of the people he uses. That's true. Right. But it's it also isn't a reason to say it's okay. Right. That's right? Like, just it's, like, it's still a tragedy and an right. injustice. Well, and God didn't overlook David's sin or Solomon's sin. I'm sure they were judged. There was judgment for that sin. I mean, there yeah, was. Well, I mean, with David, I think one of the things that's really tragic about David is a, is a lot of stuff doesn't really turn out well for him in the end of his life. Yeah. And it's real arguable that that was partly because he had a bunch of wives and he, yeah. and he did some stuff that he shouldn't. And of course the Bathsheba incident makes it worse. And when you put that stuff together, ultimately the end of his life is mm -hmm. one of his kids rapes another one of his kids. And mm -hmm. then that 
that girl's brother kills the guy who rapes her. And then he believes that his dad isn't running the kingdom. Right. And so he steals the heart of Israel and then try takes over the kingdom. Then David has to put the rebellion down. Like all that stuff flows directly out of having a bunch having of multiple, wives. multiple wives. And, right? and they say that your sins will pass down to your children. It's like Solomon's got 700 wives and concubines. Right. Then it's like that. He like 50 X what, what right, David because David did. was a very devout man, but yeah. in his romantic relationships was a little bit pr- pragmatic. Yeah. And Solomon saw yeah. that, like, and boys see that in their dads. They're like, yeah. well, my dad's really devout in this way, yeah. but in these things, he's a pragmatist. Yeah. And then they're like, so you can do that. You can believe in God yeah. and you can be a pragmatist. I, and, I, and so with, with Zacharias, what I'm saying is I think that was driven by what pain does to your mind. Like back, like I've, I've heard physical people, pain. Yeah. There was one physical woman in my last church who had had, she had, she had twins that she pushed out of her vaginal barrel. <laughs> she had, she had kidney stones and she'd had severe back pain. Ugh. And she said of those three, which are often thought of as like the three most painful things in human existence. Yeah. She said back pain was Except the worst. Getting kicked in the nuts. That's way worse. <laughs> well, for a second, for a split second, it's way worse. But, yeah, but maybe, but yeah, it doesn't last longevity, super yeah, long usually. Yeah. Sure. So, um, so anyway, but she said back, the back pain was the worst. So I think probably what happened is he was having extreme back pain. He did some things to alleviate it that put him in the presence of some temptation. Yeah. And the, then he just. That pain motivated, um, interested thinking. Like Yeah. Thinking he that, started to think about, well, yeah. I think also coupled with his ministry thinking I'm doing. Giving himself a break. Doing He's this like, much yeah, good. Right. Therefore God right. can't be mad at me if I do a little bit of what he would, what he yeah. would perceive as a little bit of bad. Yeah. And I, I have never read this study itself, but I have talked to some people who I, I I've listened to some lectures that there was a, a research done at the university of Washington yeah. about leaders and how there is this very natural sense of like entitlement that comes because leaders leadership doesn't so much create that you work more hours a day. Yeah. It's the stress that yeah. is like this layer on top of it. So it's like yeah. you're working and your backpack keeps getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And you're like, why can't I do this? I used to be able to work 10 hour days, 12 yeah. hour days. And I, I just can't. You and, see this dynamic with like construction workers. They'll work like 15 hour days, mm-hmm. but they won't be that stressed and they're fine. They could do, I mean, sometimes they'll get hurt their back, but like I met guys yeah, who just work right. and work and work and work. And they're right. like, oh, no problem because they're just doing construction. Right. But then if you meet a guy who does 10 workers, hours a day. Yeah. White collar workers are oftentimes like professors, yeah. you know, where they're doing research and right. you know, there's a little bit of bearing down. I have to publish right. articles, exactly. but it's not like leadership. Or, no. And then you add the leadership of an organization, which Ravi was under, and then you add this physical pain to it right yeah and then huh. and then the likelihood of like the desire for indulgence really intensifies right and it's really hard to miss that Man. so when i look at that i go i go yes the truth needed to come out yes his name needed to be mud for those things mm-hmm. like i agree with all that stuff that mm-hmm. happened to him but man my as a man i'm always like okay you just gotta realize you, you got i, I want to put together like what happened yeah because if something's gonna happen to me it's like it's not enough to be like he touched those women He's bad, right? That's going to make her side better. No, what makes it better is when men like me go, well, what happened to him? Because he didn't yeah. want to do that. It's also like a dad who maybe gets a divorce or has an affair. Like the kid, there's a sense in which the kid, is, as much as maybe he wants to be totally write his dad off, you, you can't in a certain aspect. Like because somebody has been impactful in your life right. and because they're, you said, like a father of the faith, if they make these mistakes you can't write the mistakes off for sure, but you, there's also something that you feel like you can't really write them off completely because, because one, there is the truth of Christianity is that you, if you write somebody else off, you're, you're allowing God, if you can't forgive others and God can't forgive you. And so that's true. But that, that the father people off, 
it's like you have a unrealistic view of yourself. Yeah, because yeah, you're like, you're yeah. like, oh, oh, I can write I them off because that. I'm not like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm not like that. It's like and, you get in that situation with back pain and everybody thinks you're the guy and you're this worldwide thing. Trying and to raise all this girls money. are there and you got money and it's like, no, most people would have done 10 times worse. I'm not saying what he did was, right. I said money, is, you know, I didn't really, but most people would have done a lot worse. Than well, he was in lots of different countries too. Yeah. I mean, there were monies of various kinds, yeah. right? But, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But yeah. yeah. And so I want to look at that and say, okay, how did he get there? Like, yeah. I, like I, I feel the same way. I mean, in certain ways, I feel the same way about Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Yeah, dude. Like, yeah. like, I don't, I don't think he just was like, yeah, let me just treat these women this way, mm-hmm. have these affairs and like say, I mean, some of he says pretty awful, Terrible. but I think about it in terms of like, he almost had a nervous breakdown about two and a half or three years into his civil rights work. Yeah. And the amount of like, like the idea that your house was bombed and they're going to kill you. And the relentless pressure of that stress. Yeah. Oh man. Like, I don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be an apologist for his affairs or anything, but no. I'm like, I I know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to judge him. Like, I'm like, look, yeah. the Lord is going to have to judge him. Right. Yet what he did is disgusting. I can't, I can, I judge that I can't do that stuff. And he's still an American hero, whatever. People can yeah. say whatever they want. And he is a hero to me. Yeah. Like he is, he, now he's not in some ways a pastoral hero to Kids me. Kids should learn about Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. Because it, he's. Yeah. There's lots of heroes that I think should be heroes, but we also should judge their flaws yeah. and under, and we need to, because we need to understand about leadership. We need to understand that like these people who lead us, what happens to them emotionally, spiritually, and psychology yeah. because of the pressure that they take on? Man, it's crazy. So that A, we can hold them accountable. Yeah. And B, so that we understand like what they're doing for right. us. I mean, Oppenheimer is another example of that. Man, some stupid crap he did and in being involved with a communist and having sex with a communist. But he we wouldn't have the the Nazis would have won the war. I mean, that's for sure. The mm-hmm. Nazis would have built the bomb. They would have won the war. I don't know. I just think about all these examples, and I think a lot of and, people and, if, and building the bomb is the only way the Nazis could have won the war. They, yeah. they did not understand that they could not produce the the number of human beings, mm-hmm. or the um. They thought that they could produce the industrial output, like the planes and yeah. the guns, and the, and they couldn't. Yeah. E- yeah, England. I mean, I didn't know this until I think it's Richard Day, Richard. Somebody, somebody Hanson. Anyway, uh, he writes a lot on like war and he, he said the industrial output of England outpaced Germany. Really? Of England. Wow. And England was in shambles right. at the same time. It was bombs yeah. to crap, right? Yeah. And America was in addition to England. Yeah, right. So like they had, the Germans had no idea. They didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't, they yeah. could never produce enough planes or tanks mm-hmm. or guns. It was never going to happen. Dang. They were going to lose and Hitler didn't understand that. But if they built the bomb, they would have won. But if they built the bomb, that could have and changed And they had things. a one and a half year head start and they had the best physicists in the world. They had right. all of the best guys. Right. And they could have kept all of continental Europe all the way into Russia. Dang. Yeah. So all that to say, I think it says a lot about people too, about like us as people that you have to try to think about putting yourself into those situations. Cause a lot mm-hmm. of people have no stress on their life they, and they still go out and have affairs and do stupid crap all the time. Yeah. And it's like no stress in comparison to some in of comparison. Yeah. You're not building a bomb that's going to save the world. I mm-hmm. mean, or potentially at the time they thought it could destroy the entire world that they set it off. Cause yeah. you know, you don't know what you're doing or you're not Martin Luther. Who's trying to like do a civil rights movement where you're just trying to keep people from like killing everybody because they're so angry about the situation that they're in and they're actually trying to make real change. It's like, anyways, we got to get into this book. The, this is chapter five It's called the flag of the world. Uh And I have a lot of questions about this chapter. Nick, you say it's your favorite 
chapter in the book. I, I, I think it's a good one. I don't know why it's your favorite. Maybe I'll get that. Um, I, so it kind of starts about, he says, he's talking about the optimist and the pessimist and I'm, I'm confused. So why is, why is this, I guess, yeah. Why is this the next part of the book? What is he, what is he doing? Cause that felt like a stark shift from talking about like whatever he was, you know, in the last couple chapters about like logic and stuff like that. And now he's talking about optimism and pessimism. I just don't understand. So, so start us out mm-hmm. by explaining what he's doing in this chapter. Okay. So it's important to recognize that a big push of the Anglophiles, people like Tolkien, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, yeah. these sorts of people. And G.K. Chesterton would have been an early one of these, yeah, right? Is to rehabilitate romanticism. There was a sense in which modernity was becoming a dead thing. Yeah. It produced World War One. Right. Right. World War One is like the most technologically advanced thing people had ever seen. Yeah. Technologically advanced enough to gas people to death. Right. Did they have flamethrowers in World War One or was that World War Two? I think they did actually. I can't remember though. That's crazy. Well, I don't know. I remember them being that being a new technology in World War II. But they what they had was mustard gas and that sort of thing. And that was way worse. Yeah. And uh-huh. it, and it was seen to be the most inhumane thing that had ever happened on planet Earth. Which it probably wasn't, but it but it was for hundreds of years probably. Yeah. And people understood that. And also in by the middle of the eighteen hundreds and later, people were understanding that like the world was becoming, as Charles Taylor would have said, disenchanted. Hmm. Like seeing a dryad in every tree and believing that the river had a spirit and that kind of stuff was kind of going away. And people yeah. were saying, well, what of the human spirit or heart yeah. can be maintained? Like, like, how do we feel yeah. about the world and how do we, and cause in your feelings and emotion, and all that immaterial stuff is basically most of the pleasure of life. Yeah. The right. meaning in your philosophy and why you really believe things are true. That's weird that I, I never thought about that, that I think of if I see a river, it's just like, there's a lot of scientific reasons for the river. It's, there's a lot of, scientific purposes it's that it does bring life scientifically that's kind of how i think about it because that's how i was brought up but yeah the old world would have thought that it's bringing life spiritually like this is like a it's a river that flows which is which was what christ is or whatever christ's love in the gospel and stuff yeah and that's so weird because you don't think i look at a tree now and i'm just like yeah this is like a means to an end it's there to give us oxygen rather than seeing beauty in it or whatever it's like a different thing Right. And yeah. like, so you might not be able to go back to believing that there's a woman who lives in the tree, like a dryad, but yeah. the idea that like that tree actually is a living thing. Yeah. Right. And contemplating like, is, does that mean something hmm. that it's a living thing? Does it mean right. something that the grass is alive? Like, yeah. Like what is all that? Right. And so part of the idea, so this was the movement of romanticism. It's like, can we, how do we, how are we supposed to feel about this? Like, what do we do? And so some people, tried to sort of like re-enchant or be sentimental about the dead modern world. So like you take somebody like a Lord Byron, who's like, he romanticized war. He romanticized womanizing. Like he romanticized all these kinds of things poetically, but without seeking to rehabilitate their spiritual reality. Yeah. And so he used women rather than saying that the sentimental thing about a woman sexually is that she's about to become a mother. Yeah. Right. And create another human life. And that, that, that is the romantic thing. Not, Right. So the means is the romantic thing, not the end that that the the sexual pleasure that you receive from the woman is is what is to be like romanticized. Not that she's going to not that she's becoming a mother. Is that what you're saying? Like the me the thing that is yeah. I'm trying to think about this because. So, yeah. If you look at like modern sexuality, the idea is is that the ple- the radical freeness of the pleasure seeking that li- that liberation. Yeah. And the 
interpersonal domination is yes. what makes it exciting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas for a lot of people, I think who are trying seeking to live a more wholesome life, the most exciting sexual encounters they'll have with their spouse is when they're trying to conceive a child. Yeah. Okay. Because decades of meaning are bound up in that moment that at this moment we yeah. could be creating a son or a daughter and that we'll be yeah. father and mother to, for the rest of our lives. And that it's when a we're, heritage. You're, right. You're, when we're old, yeah. like in like, at this moment, an everlasting being yeah. could come into existence that didn't exist before and will always yeah. exist for for the rest of everlasting. Yeah, I was reading existence. Matthew 1, and it starts with the genealogy of Christ. And, and mm-hmm. I was, that, this is exactly what I was thinking. If you're Joseph and you're like your lineage, is all passed down. You have David, Solomon, all of the kings of, of Israel and all these things. And mm-hmm. then and then now through Christ, that's like an overwhelming thing. You know, we all have that. We like have our genealogy that we all, that's all behind us. And then we have a kid and then we like, we like, we try to push that forth if mm-hmm. we, if we do a good job with our kids, if they want to go have more kids. So I, that's yeah. like a. Right. But you can see the yeah. difference between the pleasure of meaning. Yeah. And the pleasure of sensuality or yeah which is which like and the thing is is that we always do ascribe a meaning to it that's why there that's why like um uh andrew clavin's book yeah juxtaposed right juxtaposed different romantic meanings yeah byron had a different romantic meaning for sex than mary shelley yeah both had romantic views of sex but mary shelley saw the meaning of motherhood and the the, she was a woman herself she didn't particularly like somebody having sex with her and abandoning her which actually did happen She's oh, like, really? that's not romantic. There's nothing romantic about that. And that this is so people know she wrote Frankenstein. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and so Chesterton talks about this in here. So basically what Chesterton's doing is he starts with this idea that reason itself is insufficient. That, mm-hmm. that like you have to go through this process of the inclusion of imagination yeah. with reason to be mm-hmm. sane. And yeah. that imagination not only allows you to feel things and to mm-hmm. see their meaning and pleasure, but that in addition to that, it allows you to conceptualize better too. You actually think better yeah, with yeah, imagination. Yeah. Does that make sense? You think it's that you think better. Are, are they saying like think better more clearly logically? Or are they saying you think more purely in that you, you think about things as they're meant to be thought about in accordance with God? Like I think, and I'm not saying yeah, logic both. isn't, mm-hmm. isn't, I think maybe is, is, is logic properly done? Does that incorporate romanticism? Is that kind of what they're saying? Um, I th- Chesterton is saying it must. It must. Right? Because if you, okay. Because he remember hmm. Chesterton is trying to get to God. He's like, this is how I got to God yeah. from not believing in him. Yeah, he's crazy. He's not saying, right? so he's not, he get at the very end of this chapter, he gets to like, and then I saw it was God. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Here right. he's saying, See, he's saying the the mind is is not only something that works like a machine, but it's also like a an animal that has to be healthy. Yeah. And when you take out imagination and these other things, the the mind loses its health. Yeah. When the mind loses its health, it cannot function as a machine. Yeah. And right. its reason goes awry. Right. Yeah. You take the engine out of the car or something like right. that, or transmission. Right. Which is, I mean, we, we 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 think this now, right? If somebody is struggling with their mental health, mm-hmm. they could be using using their reason and be rational. And be wrong, which is what he was talking about in the beginning. The the mm-hmm. most rational men are in the in the madhouses or in the in yeah. the insane asylums. Yeah, right. I had a meeting just yesterday with somebody in the church. We had we had both gone through a multi month conflict that was really painful for a bunch of people. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about was that there were some people that we had been working with that they couldn't see. Like they were thinking through the conflict and what was done to them and how it was done and who did what at what time and what way and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, and they were like. 
why can't you guys, the people, and, and there were other people in charge and they were saying to people in charge, why can't you see this? Why can't you see what's happening? And it wasn't that their rationality was wrong. Like the way they, they put the pieces together, all those pieces happened. Mm-hmm. Those pieces did fit with each other. And then if you fit those together, you got the conclusion that they stated. It wasn't irrational. Yeah. What they didn't seem to be willing to see was, is that you could take another set of things that also happened, some of which they had left out in their analysis, put it together in a different way, which came to a very different conclusion that other people thought, which was also just as rational. No, look, I... I, And then they didn't uh, see that the difference between those two was judgment. This this, this is a tough thing. This is a real tough thing because I I just bought this book called Perspective and the Trinity. Have you heard Mm -hmm. of that book? Mm -hmm. By... Vern S. Pauly something. I cannot. Poitras. Poitras. Mm-hmm. You know that guy? Mm-hmm. I think he's probably solid. He was right? a mentor to, I think, Wayne Grudem. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And he's talking about perspectives just in general. And then he's going to talk about perspectives as they relate to the Trinity and different perspectives on the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, man, I read some of these books and I get that. What, what, and I, I'm sure he's awesome. And I'm, I'm just barely into the book, one, one or two chapters. Yeah. Okay. So I, but as I, and then I hear about those situations. I've had those situations in my life. A lot of them where you're like, I, th- I think there's a level to that that is not good, though. Sure. You, nobody can figure out what happened. They don't know what's real and what's true and right. what literally happened. And so what ends up happening is that if in, in organizations or in, in families or in groups, you see people all have what they would say, quote unquote, a different perspective but then you never come to a conclusion and then you never come to a proper way forward. Oftentimes the way right. forward is just to accept that everybody has different perspectives and not to do anything about it. Right. But there could. Yeah. But, there's, there's only three things you could do. One is yeah. you choose to forgive. You say whatever it is there is for me to forgive or right. for you to forgive. We forgive. Right. One is to just agree to disagree and say, look, we can't say what happened. Yeah. We don't really know, but we need to move forward. So. Um, let's say in the, in the future, we don't want to do this. We don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And that definitely happened, but we don't have to argue as to exactly why everybody behaved the way they did or what. Right. Sure. And then you move forward. Or the third is, as you say, these people are the, the modern languages now is toxic, right? Like these people are dysfunctional. They're going to keep doing this. Nothing will stop them from doing this. The only thing that can happen here is separation. I have to get away from these people. Yeah, that's messed up. But isn't there any, what, what option involves justice? It, I think it's usually messed up. Yeah, what option involves justice, though? Because this is, mm-hmm. I'm just not a fan of the, you know, agree to disagree, whatever. Like, within the church, I'm not a fan of that. Uh, you you yeah. know, if what you believe is literally wrong or like, or, or like, you know, like the sprinkle, Preston Sprinkle Rosario deal. Yeah. If, if, if she thinks he's a heretic, you don't get to agree to disagree here. Right. Like, one of you is wrong and you're going to hell. And like, well, what that's you, an eternal significance. And if you're wrong enough in the right kind of way, you may you're be going, going to hell. hell. Yeah. And, you know, from Rosaria's perspective, my, that might be it. I don't actually know. I think if there she are people, I think that, there are people that. that are heretical Yeah, that I wouldn't say are definitely going to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. I, they, I mean, everybody right. holds heretical beliefs. God's we're going to find that out when we die. I yeah. Think, I mean, right? heresy technically is to teach yeah, okay, false okay. beliefs. Yeah. And usually the assumption is, is that you've been warned. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that you refuse. So a heretic is somebody who teaches false beliefs right. and refuses to be reformed. But where does judgment come in? 
I'm saying from like the the Christian perspective of yeah. Well, that's relative to office, right? I mean, that's why we have elders and stuff like that. Yeah, man. But I don't think they. I don't think they do. I'm not okay. Right. It's it's very difficult to me, especially because like the thing I was referring to isn't it wasn't doctrinal. It was a personal problem. It was like yeah. people saying, well, you behave this way and that was wrong for these reasons and you yeah. behave this way. Right. And then trying to sort that out. And sometimes, no, you, I get that. Sometimes get you that. say, okay, we're going to change some things we're doing. Mm-hmm. We're going to say you were wrong about X and so-and-so was wrong about Y, but we we're not going to get the whole alphabet done here. We're yeah. not going to be like, get to everything. Everybody did wrong in every way and, and, yeah. and, and, and analyze everything right. in that way. That's oftentimes a control tactic. It, it, right. that, that the only way to be. the only way to solve this problem is if we t- solve 100 percent of everything that happened it, which is usually not possible literally impossible right. but behaviors are a they're they're a you're showing what you believe theologically through your behavior so i think Correct. that oftentimes there's a theological problem at the core of a lot of behavioral issues so people will say like yes and, and granted like so people have said that like my behavior you know, like in the church, like people have been frustrated with my behavior. Really? This is a metaphor. No, <laughs> no, no. People have been frustrated. With them. Yeah, it's a hypothetical. I usually, this would never happen to me, but um, people have said that my behavior on staff in the church or whatever, when I was at, like, like I behave in a particular type of way. Sometimes that really sets people off, especially mm-hmm. as it relates to authority and, and my role in submitting to authority or not submitting to authority. And, and I know there's a theological dif- difference, I, I, a differentiation. People say it's a behavior problem. I'm like, no, yeah, I'm behaving because I believe something true about how I should relate to authority in which you don't agree with. I don't care that you don't agree with that because if I did care that you didn't agree with that, I would submit to your view of authority and do then you, I would do, do the you know thing. Do what, what that difference is? I think there's a multitude, but I, okay. I, I, I think like oftentimes- We should like, imagine some path back to orthodoxy. Yes, we will. So no, I, I am trying to get it back to orthodoxy yeah. because I think that for me, generally speaking, my issue with a lot of authority structures within the local church and one that I've had with High Point that I think I've been clear about is that I don't think, let's just say that High Point follows the the first Timothy view of creating an elder, that or not creating, oh. but finding an elder. So then I say, okay, you haven't found an elder on the basis of these of, of these whatever 10 criteria or whatever it is, I don't need to follow the, the leader that you found because they're not actually following what scripture said. And what scripture said is, is orthodoxy. It's clear. And therefore, if you're not following that, that, that disqualifies you from actually technically being an elder in mm-hmm. which I don't have to follow the leader. I don't have to follow the elder. That's just a figment of your imagination because they're not legitimate. Yeah. Uh, that's, that, I'm, true, not, I'm not saying anything about anybody. Even all the Anglican stuff you're reading, you're, you're a Protestant. Well, no, because what I desire, and by the way, I'm not saying anything about anybody specifically besides Nick. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's a joke. Um, but I don't want to start an issue with anybody. Yeah. I'm just saying that's think, kind of what I'm thinking generally. I think I can bring this back to orthodoxy. Okay, so yeah, try to do that. I think this gets at your misunderstanding of the chapter a little bit. Bit, right. Mine? So, yeah. Okay. So, um, this is one. So one of the things about orthodoxy, but we is, should talk about that other issue sometime on the podcast, sure. how to submit to authority. Cause I don't, cause I have a, ideas about it. I'm going to get my sweater really quick since you just stopped for a second. Yeah, that's fine. We got to get a heater in our, our, we have a, a porch. No, I'll, I'll keep it in here. They have a heater in the porch. We have a porch and it's always cold. And this is for the people listening at home. And Nick's heater is in the porch at his house. And it's 65 degrees and it's kept this porch, which has a lot of windows. It's kept this porch really warm. So we haven't been able to use our porch at our house. And Nick is now back with his sweater. <laughs> so, so we, we, so I might, we might have to just get like a little heater. 
I never, we had a heater. So this is a shout out to John and Christina Sekatowski. They've been on the podcast when we were living with them, we had a heater in Titus's room. And then, and then I think it started on fire and started smoking. And so we had to put it outside and I think we've just kind of been like skeptical of heaters since then. Um, yeah. All right. So what were you saying? So some of the chapters in Orthodoxy, um, like it is written, it is not written as an apologetics book, right? It's really important yeah. to understand that. At the end of the book, he talks about books of apologetics and that he does have an apologetic for his view. That is a defense of his views. Yeah. Um, but that's not how he reasons through this. So he starts with the concept of, of pessimism and optimism. Yeah. And he, he basically says that the optimist is somebody who thinks the world is good. So, so his definitions are different than ours now. So a lot of times if you say optimist now, what people assume is you think things are going to go good. Like, you don't know what's going to happen, but you're optimistic. You think things are going to yeah, go well. Yeah. Right. And pessimistic is, I think things are going to go really badly. Yeah. Right. Right. The way he defines it is the optimist actually believes things are good. And the pessimist thinks that things are bad. Yeah. Right. And so he says the, the problem with this is, is that neither one of them has the kind of loyalty needed to love something. Hmm. They don't love the thing. And so yeah, optimism okay. doesn't lead to reform because mm -hmm. you think things are good now. Yeah. And you love, you love the thing itself. He said, what we need is the, the love we have for things optimistically has to be irrational. Hmm. It has to not be, it has to be a love for the thing but not a love for the state of the thing yeah. it is in right now. Otherwise yeah. you will make excuses for it. This is a, the best point of the chapter. I think that you, he went through a couple different explanations of you have to love the thing and hate it at the same time. And right. that you have to learn how to do that. My favorite quote, well, not my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes is, and we can talk about this because he talks about this in relation to cities. And uh, I like the quote. He said, men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. Right. And Rome is the city of Rome. And he, so you should maybe, can you explain how he's, how he's talking about cities um, as it relates to the optimist and the pessimist and what you just said that he's. Yeah. 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 So essentially what he's saying is he's saying what is necessary for the morality and passion of public life mm -hmm. is you have to believe in the idea of something that is immaterial and unreasonable. Immature. So yeah. for example, before Rome is an empire, Rome. before yeah. Rome is great, people believed something great about Rome. Yeah. And particularly he argues that they are, these are religious themes, mm. right? There's one yeah, point where yeah, he says yeah, yeah. people, people got their moralities by defending their religions. Yeah. I love that. That was right? a good one. Yeah. That was a good one. So he says something like, in our times, um, there's been a lot of um, talk about the moral con the moral contract, right? And yeah. then he says, but that's actually not how things came about. Hmm. Nobody nobody decided to treat each other civilly or well yeah. by coming up with a social contract oh, first. This was great too, right? He says, what happens is is that they don't say if you if if you don't hit me, I won't hit you. Yeah. They say we must not hit each other in the holy place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he said we they found they didn't say to each other we must be courageous. They fought to defend the shrine and found that they were men of courage. Yeah. Right. Wow. And he said, he said, it's, it's that imaginative, transcendental, irrational, that is not rooted in a, a literal present empirical thing. Mm -hmm. It is the romantic love of that mm -hmm. thing that allows you to both say, I love this mm -hmm. and will live for its good. And I will change it for yeah. the better. 
because I hate what it is. Because I, right. Because I, oh, you're right. Yeah. And the, one of the jokes he makes about this in Chesterton is a, can be a little chauvinistic in his view of women. <laughs> but he talks about women. He's like, you know, some people think women aren't like this. Mm-hmm. They, they're not capable of reforming things because they stick with their people through thick and thin. And he's like, such people have never met a woman. Not <laughs> yeah, a real one. I thought that was Because funny. women, yeah. like, they will defend their husband. And they are, but they are the most adamant about his stupidity. Yeah, changing him. Or yeah. weakness, like, behind closed doors with him. Yeah. And so they're ready to love him and defend him in front of all the yeah. people who would tear him down. Yeah. But they are the people, like, least indulgent of his thick-headedness or right like soft-mindedness right i think this is an important topic to talk about for young people because i i found myself thinking about how this relates to expressive individualism and at the at the heart of expressive individualism and the heart of kind of how i grew up and 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 really the like core belief for me was and the core thought process was why do i need to follow the arbitrary rules of the time whatever they whatever they are what, what, what like at school you, you tell me that I need to raise my hand to go to the bathroom, but like, what's going to stop me from going to the bathroom if I just stand up and go to the bathroom? Why do I need to follow the arbitrary rule? Why do I need to raise my hand and make myself out to be a, a dog asking for permission to go outside to pee? And mm-hmm. so I just would get up and go and teachers would be like, you can't do that. And I'd be like, well, then stop me. And then I'd go to the bathroom because she couldn't Which stop Which is literally me. what happens in the non key kind of schools with lots the of time. minority students. Yeah, all the time. Those students just say, screw you, you can't yeah. stop me. And in a lot of rough and they areas. Just do it. Yeah, a lot of rough yeah, areas. Well, my, even my even son, when you get it to My son rural. goes to Memorial. And oh, really? Yeah, and kids just do whatever they want. The, uh, Jude? Yeah. He goes to sc- I thought he was homeschooled. He was this semester. Lexi put him in Holy public crap. school. So he's going to a school where he's like a white kid, so he's the minority. What does he, what does he and think? And he's like, the, and kids just, if they want to go to the bathroom, they just skip and leave. What does he think? Is he like, is it a culture he, shock a little bit to him? Yeah. I mean, he's like, I think it's been good for him actually. Cause he's yeah. like, these philosophies are so stupid. Oh yeah, man. He, he's just like, I mean, he's like, he's a, he, he's, he's, he would be on the right side of things. Like, in terms of <laughs> politics. He's just like, he's like, they're just, he like, he's like, we cheer for kids that are literally going to go mutilate their bodies. Yeah. And he's like, I'm 16. And it's so obvious to me. These kids are just like insecure. They don't know who they are. Uh-huh. They don't know what sexuality mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. They like, they just, they're, they just, but people Dang, will man. cheer, literally cheer in their classroom. If they say they're going to cut off parts of their bodies. That's crazy, dude. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyways, young he, people... he was like, they, they pressured him to like try out some different pronouns in his health class. Like the LGBT group came in what the hell, and man. it was like, like cause I, cause I'm saying this because there are like some parents that'll listen to this and be like, "This that's not really happening in our public no, schools." No, it's literally You're, happening. It's literally happening. Like <laughs> so, they literally asked my son to try like Z and Zer, like maybe she or yeah, whatever. Z, like, is the she, he can still be he him too, but like yeah. let's just try some different ones. Yeah, and then he, he said sure? no. That's a good one. Yeah. So my though, so my son said yeah. no, and they asked him to defend his position. They were like, "Well, why not? Why won't you try it? Why won't you just do it?" And so he said, he said he just put on his headphones and turned on an audiobook and just checked out. And nobody bo- nobody bothered him. Did they didn't push yeah. harder? God bless him, man. They but, look. Jude, but he's the only kid in a book of, in a in a class of twenty eight or thirty. Kids. Yeah, I don't know if he listens, but if he is, Jude, just never take your headphones off. You, you yeah. know, you're hearing better things in there than you will out. <clears throat> I, but a lot of young people, I think, struggle with the idea that you can one love something and hate it at the same time. That and that's I've that's I like as far as my personal faith, I've probably struggled with the idea that I'm supposed to in some ways love myself and hate myself, the indwelling sin. And that I've, that's been a real difficult thing, but the, but also the arbitrary rules. Why, why follow right. the rules that 
it seems like somebody just made up one day. They're like, right. oh, you have to raise your hand to go pee. And I'm like, okay, no, I don't. I'm just going to go. Or right. you have to f- turn in your homework or we're not going to give you a good grade. And this grade is going to signify whether or not you're an actually respectable person. I'm like, no, right. no, that has nothing to do with my respectability. And Chesterton is saying that some of the, some of the religious arbitrary rules were there to defend something more sacred than the, you don't hit each other in the holy place because it's the holy place. There's something to respect right. and revere and defend that's holier and more sacred than you and what you want to do in your moral ethic that you're creating out of thin air in your head. Right. And so like, right. The, right. Your arrangement is, 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 and so here, this gets back to like the person who says you should get a hall pass to go yeah. to the bathroom. Yeah. What is that based on? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Can yeah, it be yeah, rationally yeah, defended? Right, and you're like, right. well, the teacher has to be in charge. Okay. Why? why? Right? Yeah. Why should the right? It's because, well, because they have more experience. Well, they don't have more experience peeing that's yeah. relevant. Maybe. Or, yeah, but maybe right. they need to direct the class and the class has to have a certain form. Okay. Yeah. Why? And, right. and and like on one level, you can try to defend rationally, like infinite yeah. to an infinite set of whys, but it's kind of like, no, the, the learning space is a sacred space that has certain orders and liturgies. Yeah. And the teacher is the high priest of those liturgies mm-hmm. and you must have a loyalty to them. Or right. everything falls apart. And you I must mean, have loyalty to them because they're the teacher, but also because they're your elder. There's also something right. something really important about <clears throat> ob- ob- obeying the, right. the authority structures that God has put in your life so long as they're not wrong, evil. You know right. what I mean? And so I, I right. but that's so, still so such me, a hard let thing. Let me read kind of the, the-, so the yeah. thesis of this. Okay. So a couple pages into the, into the chapter, he says this. In the last chapter, it has been said that the primary yeah. feeling that this world is strange yet attractive is best, ex- best expressed in fairy tales. So one mm-hmm. of the first things he argues romantically is there's something about the world where it's strange, but it's be- also beautiful. Yeah. Right. There's right. also something that feels wrong about it, but yeah. there's also something that is gorgeous yeah. of it. And that dichotomy is something we have to embrace romantically. Yeah. Right now he's going to move to a, a, a new one. Right. When we get to the next mm-hmm. chapter, chapter six, he's going to basically say these paradoxes are all of life. Right. So this is the second of those paradox, big paradoxes he's talking about. Right. So they says the reader may, if he likes, put down the next stage to the bell, to that bellicose and even jingo literature that is commonly the next, the next in the history of a boy. Mm-hmm. We owe much sound morality to the Penny Dreadfuls. And yeah. Penny Dreadfuls are basically detective stories where the bad guy gets found out. And the good guy ultimately wins after some very bad things happen. Yeah. Right. So it's essentially a moral story in which there are bad things in the world that happen. There are good. There's some good actor trying to make things go well. And it seems like there is some providence to the universe in which the bad gets found out and the good gets set right. Mm -hmm. And that are, Mm -hmm. we have a sort of love for the drama of that story. Mm -hmm. Right. And he'll end the chapter with St. George. Hmm. Fighting the dragon. Yeah. yeah, So there are, there's a beautiful world, but there are dragons in the world. Mm -hmm. And, there's something about this brave saint by which he enters into his likely martyrdom, hmm. his own death. Yeah, he talks in about order to kill yeah. the dragon, and the dragon is worth killing, not because he's so great he wants to be the guy who's killed the dragon. Yeah, but that if he doesn't kill the dragon, the world is destroyed. Yeah, right. Right. In the right. case of Saint George, the princess is killed. Yeah, and the orange tree is destroyed. Do you think that this is a tough? Uh, okay, before you go, yeah, let me go, just read the because let me now let me read the thesis. Whatever the reason. It seemed and still seems to me that our attitude towards life can be better expressed in terms of a kind of a military loyalty rather than in terms of criticism and approval. Hmm. My acceptance of the universe yeah. is not optimism, 
It is more like patriotism. Yeah, that's weird. It is a matter of primary loyalty. The world is not a lodging in Brighton, which we are to leave because Mm -hmm. it is miserable. Mm -hmm. It is the family fortress with its flag flying on the turret. And the more miserable it is, the less we should leave it. Mm -hmm. The point is not that the world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is, is that when you do love a thing, it's gladness is a reason of loving it. And it's sadness is a reason of loving it more. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so let's see. Okay. So let's get back to you being a jerk. Yeah. Let's do that. So like when you would say, I'm not doing this, Right. So you're in that role, you're playing the role of the pessimist. Right. Right. And and what he says in this chapter is you have to know why the pessimist is saying that. Mm -hmm. He said, like, imagine like 1500 people in a city in England dying of some of smallpox. Yeah. yeah. It makes a difference whether the person saying 1500 people are dying of smallpox. I'm sad to say it makes a difference whether that's some philosopher talking about how like people will die or some common clergyman who wants to help them. Yeah. He's like, he's like, whether or not you love the thing is what matters the most. Yeah. Your motivation, your transcendental belief, your loyalty. And he said that is, it's kind of like a patriotism. We, you love England, not because it's Anglo-Saxon, but you, you just love England. It's land and it's trees and it's flowers and it's people. And if you do, you will be enough of an optimist to say we could make it even better. Right. And you'll be enough of a pessimist that says, I can endure this, whatever we're going to do. What has to be done. But I think that I think that the thing that I am having a hard time with in hearing this is not I don't disagree with him. I think that it's true that you have to be able to hold these things in. uh, You have to hold them completely together, which which seems backwards. But you have to. That's that's the nature of a paradox. But I think that the the thing that I struggle with and I think a lot of young people struggle with is that that there doesn't seem to be anything left that's sacred. You know what I mean? Like, right. like when he talks about the holy place, and like you can't I, have both. You can't have your own like young person, like screw this, screw that. Yeah. Blah, blah. Yeah. And then be like, now treat me like I'm sacred. It's like, yeah. Well, that well and there's that no more go. holy places like, like the holy of holies or whatever. Like, like there was a reason for that to be exist in the tabernacle. Like it had to exist because that was a dwelling place of God. And I think that our society and culture has tore every single every single sacred place yeah. down. If we, like, but Chesterton would say it was the holy place that got the Israelites through the desert. There's a, there's a, there's oh, a verse really? in this chapter where he says, um, that pursuing something for the sake of health alone will produce unhealthiness. Interesting. Yeah. But do you, but do you know what I'm saying when I say that people can't see the sacred, like, like think about like the family, like I would consider like, like, let's think about this as the institutes that God has put in place, the local church, the family as the two main ones. Right. And, and if those two things have been essentially obliterated in society mm-hmm. and you're growing up in the society in which actually the family and the local church are two horrible things mm-hmm. in which one the society thinks that they're horrible. Culture has tried to demean them, but also they've done a good job of demeaning themselves and destroying themselves as well. How can, how can you begin to have, I think my, my, my personal pull towards Anglicanism is not that I like think necessarily that it's a better theology, but that when I go to the Anglican service, it seems like there's so much more respect, reverence, and sacredness to what's happening mm. rather than going to a Protestant service where everybody's just kind of doing whatever the leader millennial person wants them to do. And I'm like, 
Yeah, it feels more consumeristic. It's way, well, because it is. I mean, because it's designed after like marketing schemes and things like that rather than because C.S. Lewis himself has said he has a quote saying, if you don't like essentially if you don't follow the liturgies and you think like he, he kind of went at like low church Protestant evangelicals, if you don't follow the liturgies and if you don't do the, the calendar and go to the Anglican church, basically, you're kind of like a prideful, arrogant person to think that you could do it better than what we've been doing for 500, 600 years mm-hmm. or a thousand years or however you look at that. But yeah. I, I struggle with that because I think that, it, well, I, one, I think that that's prophetic in some capacity because I think a lot of young people are going to gravitate towards a more structured, sacred church service, mm-hmm. not because they know why that's happening, but because they're going to be drawn, drawn towards structure. But how do how does a young person begin to even comprehend the idea that, that there's something sacred to defend and, and you have to love, like you have to love the church and, and hate it. And you have to love your family and hate it. it, it not right. that you, it, that you have to like love it to reform it. You have to love it to make it better, which means that you can't love it in the way that the optimist thinks that it's just good right now. How do you even begin yeah. to do that when nothing in your life has ever been that way? I think it's a real confusing thing for a lot of young yeah. people. I mean, so, okay. So, so one of the things is Chesterton's reasoning here is that things are already this way. Mm-hmm. You just have to realize it and then you'll see. So what Chesterton would say is no, all your best relationships are already like this. That you hate them and love them. Right. At the so same like, time. You can attack the teacher or whatever, but like you probably have some friend you made in like little school that <laughs> you, your relationship came together in the romance of boyhood and you made a commitment to each other and that carried you through a lot of crap, trying yeah, to change each yeah. other, trying to accept each other. There was like this commitment that you just kind of had. You just, it was just emotional. That, that is, just, is interesting. And yeah. it didn't have, you, it didn't have some like particularly we didn't define technical it. reason, yeah, we didn't talk but you just it, knew yeah. you were friends Yeah, and that concept. Yeah. In its abstraction, in its transcendent nature, yeah. without its, whether or not the kid was worth being a friend to or not, yeah. the idea that you were a friend became your holy place. That's yeah. the holy place. you right. And so you might fight to defend your friendship and realize that you're both courageous and I mean, friends. This is why you would say that the idea of toxic relationships, because I would say people my age, like I've had those friends and I think some people have had those friends, but a lot of people my age are super lonely because they've also been taught that if your friend doesn't completely conform to exactly what you want them to be all the time, you can, they're toxic right. and you need to throw them in the trash. Right. The so word toxic you, is used more broadly than it should be. Yeah. What do you do with a whole generation that's been brought up on that, on that ideology and t- right. talk to them about this stuff. Right. And so I also think this is one of the reasons why you don't <laughs> see a lot of patriotism. Yeah. Among yeah. People. That was real confusing. They don't love, they'll say they love America. They'd be like, would well, you even love America? And they're yeah. like, yeah, I love America, yeah. but like, it's racist. And you're yeah, like, it's like, Okay, I don't, but I don't think you do love America. Yeah, right. I think in your own life, one of the things you've experienced is when you have rebelled against different expressions of Christianity in particular, there have been one group of people that didn't think you were doing it out of love and another yes. group that did. So so there's some people who are like, we're ready to kick you out of a college ministry or yeah. we're, we're like, you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And those are the people that when you said, I, I love the church, I love Jesus, but right. like, we got to change this crap. Yeah. They're like, you don't, no, you don't. Because right, if you because if you loved us, you would go <clears throat> along to get along, and that, you whatever. No, that no. The, see, that's you don't not think it. that that's what they thought. No, I mean, we only talk well, about I mean, that specific some, thing. But yeah. The, the, but the, what the point Chesterton is making is he's saying the problem with the pessimist or the quote candid friend mm. who says, "I'm sorry to say, but we're ruined," <laughs> is yeah. that he's not really sorry to say it. 
Like he actually takes a kind of cold relish in the fact that everything is going awry and that he saw it first and that he gets it. And he's like, you're not really sorry. It's like, if you say, if you say, look, I think that the church in Madison is just screwing up and just not what she's supposed to be. Are you about to cry? Dude, or are I, you like, here's my like, issue. You, like, it, no, I'm not saying like for you, this no, is, know, like, know, but I it's know. like the question is like, <clears throat> I, I am willing to die yeah. for Jesus church that he spilled his blood for right. that are his lambs. Yeah. Okay. Now <clears throat> is that bride, that precious flock also in some cases, a manifest whore? Yeah. Yes. I mean, the people of God have been that throughout history. Right? Yeah. Right. They are it the bride of Christ says it in the Bible. I mean, and God right. can say like, look, you're, right. you're, you're behaving like a prostitute. Now there are Christians yeah. who seem to relish calling the church right. a whore. And yeah. they don't seem to love her. Yeah, no, that that is no. But I, I think and most of those people are young. But I want to. And I, they seem to be arrogant. No, I get that. And 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 they and and their name might be Andy Schmidt. But and, that and is, so it's it's reasonable that some people they and they don't know why they just smell that people's perception. And they're like the loyalty's not there. The, yeah. Like they this okay. person won't be here. Okay, this is an issue that I have though, and let's just talk about my situation because I think that that's what I'm talking about. So if you have that that I have that, whatever, whatever it was, I mean, was the perception is that I'm being an asshole who's trying to come in here and bulldoze a thing. All right. That's usually the perception. I would say, would you agree with that? That's usually the perception from, from some people. I, I think that's accurate enough. It's a fair assumption, uh, whatever assessment yeah. of that. And I would say that it, like, if the people who were in leadership in these situations were actually godly human beings who had discernment and wisdom, they would be able to see the difference between somebody coming in and trying to bulldoze and destroy everything and somebody coming in and being like, what are we doing? We need to change it. I think like, we don't need to talk about everybody individually, but for myself, the things I did to respond to that proved my loyalty to the church, that I started this podcast, that I went to a local church, that I tried to be involved. But yet there was still to this day has been absolutely no from the other side of it, from the people in the college ministries or whatever, there's been no acceptance or, or like, Oh yeah, we were actually wrong about your intentions. We we were actually really wrong about it. And we said things about you that we should have never said. I'm not, you know, they could say that they don't have to say that, mm -hmm. but I think that, that the issue that I have is that oftentimes the, if, if a young person comes in and is firing, he's wants to change everything. Like, yeah, it's, it's annoying. Like, but I think that, I think that the issue that I always had was that there was a lack of discernment, that the first thing that people went to was everybody's conformed. And so because you're not conforming, you hate the church. When in reality, I like never, ever hated the church. I always wanted it to get better. I saw what happened to people who did hate the, the church. And I always was trying to help people get out of things I thought were bad to get into something that was better. I think that there's way too quick of an assumption made by the older people in the church, millennial, Gen X, boomers, that if you don't conform to exactly what we're doing, you therefore hate the church. And I think that the that the issue that they're going to run into is that they're going to throw a lot of young people out of the church. And I don't know how to deal with this at, an, at a governmental authoritative level, because there's a level in which the elders and pastors need to maintain order. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a level in which if you maintain order too much you don't allow for people who are messed up to be involved who are chaotic and, and you, so and you stifle where reform will come from 
yeah, you stifle where reform will come from. But if you don't have enough wisdom to recognize which reform is necessary, right. what ends up happening, which is what I always had an issue with, is that the millennials will get mad at me because they'll say that I'm being a disruptive a-hole and that I'm trying to just bulldoze everything. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm trying to create reform. And yet what they're doing is through through systematic or systemic um, systemic long-term reform, they're in uh they're engaging the church they're becoming a part of a local church they're in uh, they're integrating into the elder board into leadership positions and then over 15 years they're liberalizing a what once was conservative church into a liberal church with liberal theology and liberal belief systems mm-hmm. so they're doing the same things that they're accusing me of doing except that their theology is wrong and mine is I would say more right. And so what's happening is because I'm coming at it with a different temperament, what they're angry is at the temperament. They're not angry at, they're not, they don't care. They don't care about a trash about the church. They care about keeping the peace in a way that they want to, because they're tyrants. Is that fair? I just feel like that's like, I just don't view. I just have a hard time with the, the, there are young people who are trying to destroy everything, but the church has done a horrible job of figuring out who those people are. They just, all right. Like people think Rosaria is a fill in the blank word, but because she's intense and, and Preston Sprinkle isn't, but in 10 years, Preston Sprinkle could be Andy Stanley, who's an apostatized heretic. Mm-hmm. What, what's the difference? And then millennials will love Andy Stanley. They'll hate Rosaria Butterfield. So I'm trying to figure out how, what is, what, like, what do you do in that situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you kind of brought up like 47 different. Yeah, answer that question. Um, so, well, what would Chesterton say to that? So, you okay, I, so I, th- I think one of the first things that I think is really important for people to get from this chapter is: to what are you transcendentally loyal, as opposed to something being a transactional abstraction, right? Like, what is the church? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, and and I don't think that your commitment to Jesus can stand by itself <clears throat> because your commitment to Jesus has to have like, what does it mean? You have to start with, I believe in Jesus. What does it mean to be loyal to Jesus, to have a transcendental, like, cause I don't get to touch and feel Jesus. I can't empirically right. evaluate him right. transactionally. So like, what does it mean right. functionally? What, what is the shrine? Like, what is the, yeah, the thing man. that is the th- thing that's in the physical world that yeah. I can be loyal to that is being loyal to Jesus. Man. And Protestantism made this really, really messy. They, they made mm-hmm. that like a real freaking confusing. Like I'm still, I just feel like I live as, as a, just a really confused guy most of the time mm-hmm. when it comes to Christian faith. Yeah. But this is also true in the things that, that are derivative that are part of human life. So, so you could start with being loyal to God, but then there's also the question of like your romanticism about certain institutions, like marriage, like marriage, you have to believe for marriage to work, you can't just believe in your marriage or in your wife. You have to believe in the institution. Yeah, you got to believe in in yeah. in the transcendental yeah. beauty of the thing that we like that we must not divorce each other in the holy place. That's what Andrew right? and I, like, which I said to her before we got married, like I need you to love marriage more than you love me because you're going to hate me. But if you hate marriage, you're going to divorce me. And yeah. I think that that's like I don't care. You, she can hate me, right. and I can hate her. But if we both love marriage. Right. I think we'll be all right. We'll figure it out. And then we'll right. love each other again. But I, I right. Hating yeah. my wife is an offense against the holy shrine of marriage. Yeah, for right? sure. For sure. And so like, there have been times where Alexi and I have been sideways with each other, like, per, like bad. Right. And, and it's like, I don't like her. Like mm-hmm. if, if my, if the test of my, if I'm an optimist or a pessimist, I might, 
I might be a pessimist about Alexia. Be like, well, I, I, I you know, I hate it's to say over. this, but we're ruined. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and there's nothing in the na- yeah. natural empirical affection of my transactional relationship yeah, with my right. wife that's going to bring me back to her. No, it has to be transcendental. It has to yeah. be like Alexia is this woman who has become my wife and whom I love. I remember the first counseling session I went to when Alexia and I were sideways in seminary. This guy Brian Mayer said to her, said to me when I talked about how much I hated her, he's like, but she's your wife, and you love her. Mm-hmm. And you want her to be the mother of your children. And I'm like, no, I don't. Mm-hmm. Right. But you see what he was tapping into was like, it was that bad. You like really just didn't like oh, yeah. her that much. Yeah. If Jesus was not in the picture, I probably would have divorced her. Really? Yeah. And her, me, like, I mean, she yeah, felt similarly, sure. but like, it yeah. was just, and it was just, and frankly, Andy, it was just a normal uh, not normal, like everybody has to experience it, but like a pretty normal, like <laughs> most we're everybody both working does. hard. Yeah, we're yeah. trying to get these things done. It feels like you're not paying attention to me. Yeah, right. Like it seems like you like making a future for ourselves. Yeah, was undermining our present enjoyment of each other in connection yeah, with each right, other, such right. that it, it felt like this we were just getting used and not loved. Yeah, and yeah. I mean that's pretty normal for young marriages. In a lot of where ways, you're trying to get somewhere. Would you say that's kind of what marriage is in a lot of ways? Like, can be. I, mean, I think that there's stuff both of us could have done to make it to better, make it better, yeah. but we were doing the best we could at the moment and it wasn't working. So what's the definition of a sacrament is a marriage. <clears throat> that's not a sacrament. What am I thinking? In the in Catholic theology it is like, so yeah, so yeah. a sacrament is something that has a metaphysical existence. That's more than the transaction. Yeah. So, okay. So like, this is you, what a sacrament you, is. Yeah. Like you yeah. could get it. You could, you can get a divorce, Yeah. but you're not divorced. <laughs> right because because jesus is like if you go and have sex with another woman you're committing adultery right so yeah. yeah right he's saying like if you get married you become one flesh there's something mystical that happens there yeah transcendental yeah that you can't undo even if even if there's legitimacy to the divorce no in a way, in a way, you can't ever undo it. But in a way, there are ways in which marriages can break up. The covenant can be broken. I mean, even the, the first covenant that God made with His people is ultimately broken, but not easily. Yeah, right. right? Like, like there was some, there was something more there than, than just the transactional relationship. So, like, if I have a friend, right? Let's say I, there's a guy I know, and we're friends, right? Mm-hmm. What, what? keeps our relationship together. What decides what it's going to be? What decides to what extent I'm pessimistic or optimistic, whether or not I try to change it or not. Right. It ha- what Justin is saying is it has to be your belief about what a friend is. Yeah. This is a tough thing too, because I think and a, you have to be loyal to that. But a lot of people think that friendship isn't that this is, I think the difference. And I was going to write up some stuff about this, like, like the difference between community and fellowship that I think the church in America has, has, for at least my whole life, I've heard a lot about community, community, community. We we want to be a community of people who love God and blah, blah, blah. And I think what happens when you primarily focus on community rather than on fellowship mm-hmm. uh, is that you, you, what happens is that, well, okay. I think what fellowship think what you, encapsulates- words that way, community is- our us spending time together yes as a thing we all get something out of yes and fellowship is fellowship there's is, a reason why we're called to together yeah, for a purpose and we show up right well, under the umbrella of fellowship is community but it's community pointed specifically at christ within the local church so that it's mm-hmm. a community that's primarily focused on obedience 
and love and of Christ and that right. you're trying to do the right thing together. And as, the belonging comes from yes. the loyalty to Jesus and the people right. he creates. And then through right. that, you, you, what naturally happens is that a community comes about of it in which you can both enjoy each other and people, groups of people can enjoy and have fun together. But if you try to put the community above the fellowship and just try to enjoy each other, what ends up happening is that you, you destroy what the fellowship was meant for, which is Christ. And then you have no aim and goal. And so what you end up being is just a group of people who nobody can actually say what's mm-hmm. true. You all, you all usually end up just engaging in a lot of sin with each other and lying about things and whatever. And I think I'm, I'm like, yeah, that's, I feel like that's happening and that, and, and that if you're not aiming, if your group isn't aiming at something, what it just becomes is kind of just, you can't be friends. It's hard to figure out how to be friends with somebody if there's no aim, because then a relationship, if if he's saying that it's kind of geared towards reform in some capacity, then how can I reform a friend? How can a friend and I ref- try to reform each other if neither of us have a full agreement on w- what exactly we're reforming towards? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people have tried to disconnect the fellowship from the community and the Christian church so they can have people to hang out with because they're lonely, but they can have people who aren't going to tell them what to do because they're arrogant. And it gets really dysfunctional. This is why I don't like young adult groups anywhere because this is what it turns into every single time because young adults are immature and nobody's there telling them stop sinning, stop doing the bad thing. Hey guys, are we doing this because we love Jesus? Are we doing this because we want friends? And that's yeah. The open field, it doesn't work without the shrine. Like, yeah, like, yeah. There, like there's a reason why it's a holy place. And if you don't have that yeah. as your organizing principle. And so you can see this in churches that want to say, okay, people now they belong before they believe. And this is kind of normal and so on. And on one level, like I'm on board with that. Like it is true that um, if if we understand the world romantically, there is a sense in which people have to sort of like catch the imagination of the thing as well as understand its reasons. And that often happens within a concrete context of the relationship of people, but that belonging before believing has to exist among a people who believe in the shrine, in the God, in the the church, in the Jesus. Otherwise they're, they're not coming into something that will transform them. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just community, but it's a, like, it's a country club, you, but like using community to lead people to discipleship has to be something. The community that they're coming into has to be fellowship. Yes. Yeah. And and that has to be defined by a certain sanctity. And what is this about? What has in that sanctity has authority? What yeah. sanctity has authority here? And they would call that orthodoxy. Chesterton would call that orthodoxy. I mean, everybody historically called that orthodoxy. If right. you didn't, if you didn't believe in the apostles creed, or if you didn't, if you didn't confess these things to be true in the Bible, you aren't a Christian. You can't right. be a part of our fellowship. We want you to be, but we have standards and we have guidelines. Right. You and, have to be in order to really belong. You have to be a patriot. Yeah. Right. And so what Chesterton says is that aside from being an optimist or a pessimist, what, the question is, are you a cosmic patriot? Yeah. That like for, for the I church, am for, for the universe. For G- yeah. The way he says okay. it is I am for the universe. Because right. he, he doesn't even say yet like that it's God's universe. Yeah. He's just like, yeah. I am for the universe. Like creation, yeah. being, hmm. life is hmm. good. And the way he argues this in a way that is very unpalatable to modern people is in the difference between suicide and martyrdom. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. He goes in on suicide. One of his quotes that goes I goes in like attacks it like, very aggressively. Yeah, he attacks it aggressively. He says, "Not only is suicide a sin, it is the sin." So, so that was one of the things they said. And then he goes on to explain this. Um, yeah. I, so f- there are going to be yeah. some people that are going to really have trouble with this. Let me. I want to put it in context a little bit about what he's saying. Right. So. 
What's would, the trouble? Who's uh, going to have trouble? I don't understand. Well, people who are in the mental health industry are going to flip out. Okay, well then don't right. listen. No, 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 no. No, they should he's listen. Not, they he's should. not saying what he, they, they will immediately assume he is saying. Because later- We'll in that, see if you and I agree on right, that. Later in the discussion, what Chesterton says is, there may be any number of pathetic reasons for suicide. In this chapter, he says that. In human life. Oh. So, so he's like, look, he, he's, he's saying, I'm not necessarily saying- because he's trying to be a minimalist here. He's like, I'm not necessarily saying this. There, there might be somebody who kills themselves for very pathetic reasons, reasons of internal suffering. Yeah. Or what we might call mental illness that aren't that he's like, that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. I'm saying conceptually speaking, what is suicide? Yeah. And right. it is the rejection of the universe, the rejection of being. Yeah. It's killing all things to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It right. is the sin against mm-hmm. hope. It is the sin. And it's a sin against everybody is what he's saying. He's saying that right. you're you're the me. You're uh, not just erasing yourself. You're erasing everything. Yeah. The existence of another person or of an animal or whatever. He goes into all the things. It's right. like you're saying that it, nothing yeah, all is of worth the, living. Exactly. For. None yeah, of those things right. matter enough yeah. that you should live in honor of them. Man, that sucks. Right. People get into that mindset. Right. He says at one point, if a man hangs himself from a tree, yeah, it would be right for all the leaves to fall off that tree and insult it. All birds to fly away angry. Yeah. Because yeah. you didn't because you insulted all of you insulted yeah. every leaf and every bird and every feather in creation. Right. Now, I think it's important to recognize that what, what Ch- and just Annie said, it may have been right for the medieval church to not allow suicides to be buried in the church graveyard because it was considered a kind of contaminant that that it was like it was such a a dishonorable dishonorable way to die Mm -hmm. and his argument was not that it has to be true that everybody who commits suicide goes to hell but what he's saying is there's something so anti-being so against the nature of the universe so treasonous against the nature of the cosmic patriotism that it needed to be treated as a terrible thing yeah right Right. You, it, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to believe everybody who commits suicide goes to hell. Right. But what it does mean is, is that he's what he was arguing is there was a modern pessimism that said life was it was no big deal. Life didn't really matter. Um, the famous quotation is the one in that he makes from Matthew Arnold. So he says this. After he argues a good bit about loyalty, he says, I pause to anticipate an obvious criticism. It will be said that a rational person accepts the world as mixed, a mixed of good as as mixed of good and evil, with a decent satisfaction and a decent endurance. But this is exactly the attitude which I maintain to be defective. Mm-hmm. It is, I know, very common in this age. It was perfectly put in those quiet lines of Matthew Arnold, which are more piercingly blasphemous than the shrieks of Schopenhauer. Mm-hmm. Arnold said, Enough we live, and if a life, with large results so little rife, though bearable, seems hardly worth this pomp of worlds, this pain of birth. Mm. And then Chesterton comments and says this, I know this feeling fills our epoch, and I think it freezes our epoch. For our time of titanic purposes, of faith and revolution, what we need is not the cold acceptance of the world as a compromise, but in some way in which we can heartily hate and heartily love it. We do not want joy and anger to neutralize each other and to produce a surly contentment. We want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. We have to feel the universe at once to be an ogre's castle to be stormed. And yet as our own cottage to which we can return at evening. Right. Hmm. That's the passage. One of the reasons this is one of my favorite chapters is that's the passage I read at my dad's funeral. Really? Yeah. When some 19 year old idiot, 
decided to drive recklessly and kill my father who was driving 55 miles an hour in his lane, normal driving home from visiting his 90 year old mother. Right. The issue was like, how drunk or was he? He wasn't drunk. He was just an idiot. He passed a tractor tractor trailer on a double yellow line on a curve and just plowed in my dad and killed him. And he lived. Right. And wow. like, when you say, like, how, what do you do with this? Right. He's still alive today. Mm, sure. Wow. Yeah. Um, huh. What do you do with this? Right. It, the, right. the issue is, is like, you have to be incredibly fierce in your discontent yeah, and incredibly fierce in your delight. Yeah. So fierce in your delight. So like, imagine like the person who can like go to a good protest and shout their heads off and then kind of be at wonder at the beauty of the city and the fact that we can live together and not kill each other and go eat a piece of pizza and wonder at like that the tomatoes came from Virginia and the flower came from, you know what I mean? And like, like have a sense of the like wonder with your cosmic patriotism and all that you're a part of with this fierce loyalty and contentment without the treason of pessimism. And yet able in that optimism to say, we need to change some things. Yeah. I mean, that's a really, you like, I felt like for me, since I'm probably more pessimistic, generally speaking, that I've had to like put a lot, I've had, almost had to fight for that. Like if I can, yeah. I can, you know, go somewhere where I feel like everything's wrong, everything's going wrong, but mm-hmm. that I can come home and, and eat a good meal with my family, that I can't take the, the everything's wrong with me home to, to the thing that's yeah. actually good, or I destroy the thing that's good right. too. And, and it's, you have to like fight yourself to do that. I mean, I've had to right. like your really... power, your power to seek good reform yeah. comes from your delight, not your anger. Yeah. And even your anger, if it's going to be good anger, the anger has to come from a place of loyalty Yeah, and love. And right. Yeah, it has to be fueled by love. Right. And this is why, like, for example, this is why some of the younger people who are like, um, like protesting for stuff aren't getting as far as they could because mm-hmm. I don't believe they love the city. No, Not they just really. want to destroy everything. Right. They, and they literally Marxism. say that. Yeah, yeah. Right? I want to destroy it. And you're like, do you have no tear for the thing you wish to destroy? And here's the problem. Because you must yeah. to bring about justice, let's say. If you don't have an, uh, the ability to put to control your anger or to, to put it in its proper place, it just it just bleeds over into everything else all the time. I mean, you, you see this like... Like there was a joke. You won't end up, up building anything good. Yeah. There was a joke right. growing up and like, you know, whatever. My dad would, would be frustrated at work some days and then he would come home and he would be, he would still be frustrated. He would still be mad. And we'd be like, you know, dad's mad, dad's mad. And we'd just like mock him and make fun of him and stuff. And that didn't help him. And I'm sure it made him more angry, but, but like that was, you know, it's like, I would always think about that. Now I'm like, I, if I go to work and I'm like frustrated with work or something's happening at work. I, and, and a lot like if I bring it home, it's an injustice to my family. It's an injustice to my children that I something that had nothing to do with them now is their problem. And that like I need to be able to create distinctions. And if I let my anger control me, what it ends up doing is is bleeding out into all these other parts of my life that it has no business being a part of. Mm-hmm. I can be pissed off that the church is going in a direction the wider church in America is going in a direction or whatever. And I can think about that only, but then when I have to get up and go like change a diaper mm-hmm. that like, I can't let that go with me and be like pissed while I'm changing my kid's diaper or something. You know what I mean? Like there's, it's really, you have to kind of like fight it at every turn. Cause it's really difficult to try to, um, I, it's just difficult to not let it control you c- completely. And that's like, 
And a lot of young people just don't think about that. They just let their anger kind of just bleed into all parts of their life. And they become unpredictable, emotionally abusive people. And I hate using that word abusive because everybody misuses it. But I think that that's a, a good way of using that word. Yeah. Um, and so this gets at the pessimistic part. So uh, yeah. after he talks about martyrs and suicides, he comes to this point where he's trying to get at the issue of the pessimist. And he says... Um, uh, I saw a excellent weekly paper in the Puritan tone remark that Christianity, when stripped oh. of its armor of dogma, turned out to be nothing other than the Quaker doctrine of the inner light. Now, if I were to say that Christianity came in the world, especially to destroy the doctrine of the inner light, that would be an exaggeration, but it would be very near the truth. Yeah. Right. And he says the last Stoics, like Marcus Aurelius, and he quotes Marcus Aurelius here because there are lots of people yeah. among the Stoics that think Marcus Aurelius is like the, the greatest of human beings because yeah. he was so like tempered and clear and, and there's there's Chesterton, a resurgence like, right now of stoicism yeah there is yeah. so there's a there's like a new like you think jordan peterson in some capacity is 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 at least started out engaging in yeah, some sort of that sort of i think i think um who's the big pop podcast guy joe rogan i think is a pseudo oh, sure, is a pseudo sure. semi-stoic yeah i think um i think one of the more famous ones right now i think would be andrew huberman I don't know who that is. So Huberman is a, uh, he's, he's been on. So my daughter, who's a weightlifter, listens to him. He's like, um, he's a scientist who studies neurology and aging and how our body functions. And like, he's the, he's the guy who made the cold plunge popular. Oh, really? Like the, like, yeah, you mean get in 34 degree water to like activate your body, you know? That's not for me. Right. But you're like, that's stoicism, man. The whole, like, I'm so strong. I can do the things to make myself great. Isn't that just insecurity? You know, I'm just like, Look, no, man. dude, these, I mean, like David Goggins would be another example yeah, of but this. That's all insecure. David Goggins, like a terrible, he's divorced as like three. He's like the terrible person. Okay. All well, these he, people are. Okay, ter- yeah. He's wait for go, it. Here we go. I, yeah. Right. So he says, like Marcus Aurelius, we're, we're exactly the people who did believe in the inner light, their dignity, their weariness, their sad external care for others, their incurable internal care for themselves. We're all due to this inner light and the, ex- and existed only by that dismal illumination. He said, Hmm. notice that Marcus Aurelius insisted as such introspective moralists always do. We live in an incredibly moralistic and introspective age right now. And he's saying this kind of stoicism has this kind of introspection to it. When a lot of people in the boomer generation who were Christian preachers Hmm. would preach against being introspective. And I always thought that was the strangest thing. Why would you preach against introspectiveness? Why would you want to be oblivious to what's going on inside of you? Hmm. But, but they understood with there was a morbid level of it. Yeah. And I think they may have gotten that from the sixties. I'm not sure, but anyway, they did that. And so he says this, he says such introspective moralists always do upon small things done or undone. It is because he has not hate or love enough to make moral revolution. He gets up early in the morning, just as our our own aristocrats living the simple life get up early in the morning. Because such altruism is much easier than stopping the games of the amphitheater or giving the English people back their land. Okay, what he means by that is Marcus really wrote this great philosophy stuff. But he kept the games in the Coliseum going where people were getting slaughtered and killed for the masses. Yeah, right. It would have actually been morally hard. It would have been a moral revolution to stop the games and to stop slavery. Yeah. But Marcus Aurelius didn't. He was introspective. He thought lots of interesting thoughts and he wrote them down in his like philosophies. He was a quote, great philosopher, but he didn't undo any of the great moral problems of his age. And that's what, that's why I love Jad Packer because he says, and I think it can be said, he says this about theology, but I think it can be said about philosophy too, that 
He's like, if your theology isn't producing a godly life, isn't producing right. ministry, then your theology sucks, right. basically. And it's the same and not with philosophy. personally, but beyond personally. Beyond you, right? yeah. Right. If you're okay. not going and doing the gospel, if you're not going and preaching and, and helping the poor, your your theology is trash. Yeah. So, okay, listen to how he continues to attack this idea of like the inner self, the introspective life, or the inner light. Yeah. He says, Marcus Aurelius is the most intolerable of human types. Mm. He is the unselfish egoist. I love that phrase. Yeah. The unselfish egoist. Think about all the people who like post stuff on social media and they're like, I'm for reform and like black lives matter. And this is so (laughs) like all this stuff or, you know, anti-capitalist or this, I mean, there's a right wing version of that too, I'm sure. But but it's kind of like, I'm so into other people, but they're, Mm. they're an unselfish egoist. It's still really all about them. Right. Right. He says the unselfish egoist is a man who has pride without the excuse of passion. Yeah, man. Right. And then he says this of all conceivable forms of enlightenment, the worst is what people call the inner light of all horrible religions. The most horrible is the worship of the God within anyone who knows anybody, anybody who knows anybody knows how it would work. Anyone who knows anyone from the higher thought center knows how it works. That Jones shall worship the God within him turns out ultimately to simply mean that Jones shall worship Jones. Yeah. Let Jones worship the sun or the moon, anything rather than the light. Let Jones worship cats or crocodiles if he can find them in the street, but not the God within. Yeah. I I thought that was awesome. (laughs) I was like, yeah, he, that, that was good. Yeah. I like that. And so he's like, you have to love what's outside of yourself. You have to love the actual world that really exists. But then he says, the problem with nature worship is right. That it goes wrong. Right. It's like the person who worships sex ends up doing like defiled sex. Mm -hmm. He says, and so he says it this way. The only objection to natural religion is that somehow it always becomes unnatural. Hmm. Uh, right. So he's like, yeah. don't worship the God within. You might as well worship the trees or the moons yeah. and the stars. He's like, and he's like, on one level, that would be much more wholesome. He's like, the problem is the worship of nature never stays just loving the external world. Yeah. There's something about that that's you broken. You start to pervert the nature. Right. And, then, and that's the nature of man to pervert, pervert these things. So right. then the next step is to to worship the thing that created nature. Right. He and says, that created okay, you. so he says, a man loves nature in the morning for her innocence and amiability. And at nightfall, he loves her still for all of her darkness and her cruelty. He washes at dawn in the clear waters as the wise man of the Stoics. Yet somehow at the dark end of the day, he is bathing in hot bull's blood as did Julian the apostate. And then he says this quote, which I quote before, the mere pursuit of health always leads to something unhealthy. Yeah. Right. And see, this is one of the things that I struggle with, with like the Jesus and counseling gig is seeking like, like the Andrew Huberman, like optimal health, the mm-hmm. Peter Adia, optimal aging, the, yeah. you know, getting your counseling right. And Jesus plus psychology. Yeah. The problem is, is that people start using the word health instead of holiness. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that health is the transactional, yeah. not the transcendental. Holiness mm-hmm. is the transcendental. Yeah. And the problem is, is that when you seek health, you get unhealthy. Yeah. Right. 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 Like all this, like, well, we need to pursue our mental health. We need to pursue our mental health. We're having a mental health crisis. Yeah. We need to stop with all this God stuff and we mm-hmm. need to pursue mental health. The whole problem with that is the more you pursue mm-hmm. mental health for its own sake, the more mentally unhealthy people uh, are going to get. Yeah. You actually aren't helping them. Mm-hmm. They have to pursue the shrine, the holy place, the mm-hmm. loyalty to the cosmos. Right. And what just says is when you realize that you start to realize that God or orthodoxy 
is at the center of everything that is healthy. Right. Right. Because it is the shrine that makes us not hit each other in the holy place. It is, Mm. it is the beauty of the trees and the wood, but being more than it's Mm -hmm. because in the wood is not just the beauty. It is the Fox tearing the rabbit apart. Yeah. Within nature is both the beauty and the cruelty, but what differentiates those two so that you continue to love the natural beauty, but you aren't drawn into the natural like domination. So you can start making love to a woman because she's this beautiful, fertile thing in which you are complimentary drawn, drawn, to in your yeah. desire for fertility but in, then the domination of the male yeah, over the right. female the strength and the yeah enters in in that like perverse way so yes. quickly so you start yeah. with like the like but sex is good let's be sex positive to kink is normal let's defile yeah. each other yeah right and he said only this cosmic loyalty to the good that can separate the bad and seek to reform it right can allow you to embrace nature for nature without mm. pan quote showing his cloven hoof. Yeah. Otherwise pan, the God of nature becomes the devil. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's like the best point. I mean, that's like the point that of this culture needs to hear. I think, I mean, every culture needs right. to and hear this that. Was don't get me wrong. Like the very 19, early 1900s. 1900s. Yeah. 1934. I, I think. I don't know. I, I thought it was earlier than that, but yeah, it been. maybe it was. I thought it was in like twenties or 10. No, yeah, it, it was not the tens. World War II, I think. It, yeah. Um, but yeah, man, I, I thought, I think that that's like the message that this culture needs to, needs to, needs to hear. Did you find what year it is? No, it's, no. it was republished in 2002. Oh, right, it doesn't have the right. original date of publication. But yeah, that's the message that this culture needs to hear because I think that, right. Well, one, I thought that it was interesting that he, he kind of went out right. several steps. It was like, okay, right. it's the worst thing ever to worship yourself, which is obviously true as Christians, but then. And then I like that he said it would even be better to worship something outside of yourself in nature. Like that's right. interesting. You know, you think of like the Native Americans. I think of you know they they worshipped all of the the you know and and their life like something that Andrew and I have talked a lot about is that she like she's really interested in the Native Americans and you know I'll ask her like what what time period would you live in where would it be and stuff and she's like with the Native Americans and so I've always been like well I don't know why that is like I've never been that interested in them but I think it's because there's something wholesome about their relationship with nature but then mm-hmm. she, obviously she always she recognizes they take it way too far and now they start to just worship the nature and then what ends up happening is that they do terrible things because of that yeah. and then right and and when so like when early missionaries in america talked with native americans right they there were so when so wesley talked with some native americans in georgia and they engaged in um like ritual abortion yeah right yeah. and because they didn't want to feed more mouths because they were living on subsistence cultures and, right and they said that we know the great spirit is doesn't look like this mm-hmm. so in there like in like they had like a nature they had a nature oriented view of the world yeah but, but native americans in the united states at least in most places on at least on the eastern seaboard believed in what they called the great spirit yeah who they believed was a person who thought things because they they imagined him like like a human person and so they actually believed in a god yeah so even in their nature quote nature worship they Mm. weren't worshiping the water and the they believed it was all sacred right Mm. in that sense they were they were pseudo monotheists Mm. right they didn't have some of the additional moral commands Mm. but even the law written on their heart was more than they could respond to yeah right and they and there was and so there so some of that wholesomeness doesn't come from like a sheer paganism right like but, in europe but the, right. the american native americans had more of a monotheistic religion and i think it in some ways it produced better things now in some ways we don't want to tell the story of the native americans about how many horrible things i mean they massacred people they, they, were, went, horrible, they were genocides they, it was i mean it was it was not other there, there has pieces. never been a yeah. noble savage like rousseau imagined yeah you know hmm. but 
there were some things about their lives that it's the thing that I think the one of the reason romantics turn to that is because there's something clearly transactionally inhuman about modernity. Mm-hmm. And when you say, well, what else is there? You can't see any kind of future. So you end up looking back mm-hmm. and you're like, there's something about wholesome rhythms. And one of those things is being in like continuity with the earth. Yeah. Like in, like in a, like in a flow and subsistent cultures have to be in a kind of flow with the, the mm. earth and they have to live in certain kinds of cycles. And there yeah. is a kind of wholesomeness to that. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. there's also a terrible truth, truth that, reality. And the fact that those people aren't good and they killed each other horribly yeah. and they limited their populations on yeah. purpose and they didn't know how to farm mm-hmm. and like a lot of terrible stuff too. Yeah. Chesterton's ability to just kind of like tear something apart while not being totally, uh, offensive to people i think like you know obviously he's tearing it apart and but not being like completely i mean he he went in on the inner enlightenment i don't think he really gave him anything and he kind of just tore that apart because he yeah. this thing that's horrible but I, right. I, I mean and he connects that not to fruity like transcendentalism yeah he connects it to mm. stoicism which i think is very right. important because mm. if you look at like so if you're like okay the like the fruity like so take your pink haired person yeah. who's like lgbtqia by like personal identification because she yeah. wants to be transhuman and she's right. super insecure doesn't know herself she's right. a child of divorce and she's tweeting all kinds of like leftist blm stuff right yeah right and you're like right. what's what's going on there right and it's like well he like he attacks her for not having the kind of loyalty yeah. to being in yeah. creation and so what's what's happening here is like is inhuman however he also turns to the like modern like like the man who wants to be a man like jordan peterson huberman rogan kind of like new stoicism and he's like it's an it's just a different kind of egoism yeah it's a different kind kind of self-worship i mean yeah. you're, you're doing the same thing you're just coming to different you're coming to different ends i think that that you're has, still a traitor to being yeah, in the cosmos right. and you don't know what and who you are and you, you will not have yeah. the primary internal loyalty right. where you can tear down Pimlico and rebuild it. And this is, yeah, this is the Ayn Rand problem. The, the, right. the, uh, Ayn Rand is the worst. She's literally the worst. She just and this didn't is, exist yet for him to attack. Yeah. This is the modern Republican problem is that the Republicans right. care. And this is why I don't believe that they're conservatives because right. they're not. I care they, about the poor. You're like, really? really? What was the last thing you did for anyone poor? Ever. No. What was the last time you did anything for anybody other than yourself? And they're, and, and they're, like, and they're like, well, I'm for the free market. It yeah. would help them. It's like, it's like yeah, yeah but, but you could be for the free market and do a lot of charitable work for yeah, the poor. Yeah, you can be an advocate. Exactly. And this is the problem that I ha- Yeah, the problem with modern republicanism is that the only thing that is trying to preserve in quote unquote conservatism is the free market. And the reason they want to preserve the free market is so they can keep their stuff. They're, they're consumeristic. And more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And have more. They're consumeristic idolaters who, 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 uh, who want to worship their money and their possessions and their mammon. And, and is like, you can't serve both. You got to hate one or love the other. And I, I think that, I mean, I, I, I like that he's attacking both ends of it, but I don't think that Republicans are conservatives because conservatism isn't economic only and econo- economics aren't only, it's not mathematics. It's, it's social. It's social. Market, it's, yeah, the, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. They're intertwined because the free market is in some sense necessary for freedom. Right. And freedom is necessary for conservative, like a conservative vision of the world where we rely on yeah. ourselves. We form families, the yes. government, like our main loyalty is to God, not the government, for right, example, and right. so on. And, and a certain amount of freedom is necessary for that. Mm-hmm. And economic freedom is necessary for all kinds of freedom. Yeah. A la Milton Friedman. Right. Therefore you have to have a free enough market system in order yes. to, affirm that right 
So there, but you have to believe in the social, the social biblical ethic to believe that the things like family, business, the the common, the, the good of all people, like the love yeah. of the world, is is worth pursuing politically through law. Right. It, you, you have to have that under. You have to have that belief, and I don't think a yeah. lot of people have. But that. I, I think if if you if you read this this chapter carefully, right. Mm-hmm. Chesterton both goes after, and this is long before these people exist in their modern terms, right? But he's he's going after the modern transhumanist, which is like the modern progressive. Yeah, and he's saying you don't you're you don't have loyalty to being. You have like mm-hmm. like and I transsexualism is a good example of this. Like a fundamental a fundamental loyalty to being would be you're a woman, so you're a woman. Yeah, right. Or you're a man, you're a man, and like. And, and that there's a, a bunch of romance that goes along with it. I think what happens with a lot of people who get sexually confused is they don't ever get to really embody and embrace the romance of, right. their, of what they right. are. Right. And, and so it makes sense to me that they would, they would be like, well, I should just be whatever I want to be and can be. Yeah. The stoic, the stoic side of that is just another version of egoism Yeah. Right. where the person says, so on one level, it's like the progressive version is I can be whatever I want to be. What, mm-hmm. what, um, what's his name called a poetic view of the world. Right? Yeah. R- Rousseau. No, no, no. Truman. Sorry. Truman, yeah, right. Truman, right. Yeah. Uh, Carl Truman calls that a poetic yeah. view of the world, yeah. poetic view of the world that, that yeah. you can like, I have these raw materials, but I can be whatever I want. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, the modern stoic side of it is I evolved from apes. Yeah. If I understand my evolution better, right. I'll understand how my body works better and my neurology works better. And therefore I can do things to make my psychology better and make me like my, yeah. get more out of life. I can suck more out of the marrow of life. One wants to suck marrow out of life by rejecting their nature and being whatever they can be. Mm-hmm. The other is by perfecting their nature mm-hmm. in an evolutionary health sense mm-hmm. and by their self-discipline, i.e. stoicism, mm-hmm. get the most out of life. And the stoic, Both of those yeah. are egoisms. The, the Stoics primarily focus on objectivism, whereas the the progressive, I don't know if that's what we'll call it, the progressive is primarily focused on, on the like emotional on what they think is emotionally uh, transcendent in that they can, they, that like I think about the gender thing, you can be like you're a different gender every day that they believe in something emo- like there's some emotional, uh, it's they, a, they don't it's believe a, in anything objective. They only believe in what- The inner light. The inner light, whatever mm-hmm. that's, yeah. They, they uh, Is there another word for that? It's like- um, they We don't use spiritual language for it anymore. Yeah. Now well, it's your internal psychological experience of yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's and, what people meant by the inner light. Right. And so they're both taking the two things that I think Chester might go on to talk about in the next chapters and t- taking them all the way to their ends, which is just perverting them and destroying them. Those two things are supposed yeah. to be meant to work in union and paradoxically to point us towards the gospel, towards God, towards Christ, right? Like, right. right. We should and what Chester, what Chester is saying is if you don't understand it's this 10, primary... It's 10, 11. Okay. You got to meet... You got something. To yeah, I got to be gone here a minute. But what Chesterton is saying is if you don't understand that there is a cosmic loyalty at the at the bottom of the universe, yeah, whatever you believe will go wrong. Yeah. He he said, this is the difference between the suicide and the martyr. Mm -hmm. The martyr is so committed to life and to being and to the universe itself and that there are goods all around them that Mm -hmm. they're willing to die so that something Mm -hmm. might live. Mm -hmm. Right. This, the suicide is not willing to live for anything anymore. Right. For whatever reason. Right. And he's saying that distinction of loyalty to life, that there is good and beauty and that, but, but not, but if you do it and you just worship nature. Yeah. 
that will go wrong. But it's if you just worship yeah. the inner light, that right. will go wrong. He's like something right. more. You need to be committed. And what he's saying is to God. Right. Well, and that's why none of these these psychological systems or political systems will ever work. No. no, no. At the at bottom, without a commitment to the great spirit, to God, to the shrine that He creates, mm. to that central loyalty that allows for both the good optimism of reform and the good pessimism of right. accepting the difficulties of yeah. the world, but still wanting to do something. Yeah. It's like it doesn't work mentally. Yeah. It doesn't. Our ro- there is no romance there that leads to that. It, that's not right. the way love works. Right. Well, and, and he says, and I'm not trying to open a can of worms here, but he also says that like the the martyr can be taken to the level in which people are like. I think he talks about how like the sometimes a martyr becomes somebody who's only wants to be killed for their faith. And mm-hmm. then therefore they don't actually value life at all. They just value the, like the perceived maybe honor in becoming a martyr more mm-hmm. than they, more than they're valuing what you become a martyr for. And so they, they pursue, they seek out martyrdom. Right. But what they're, what that situation is, I think maybe he doesn't say this, but I'm feeling like it's similar to the suicide. It's mm-hmm. it's where you're seeking out non-existence for some sort of weird Right. Pleasure in some. Yeah. And way. so this, this idea that like you but have generally to have, martyrdom is opposed. I'm, I'm right. Not, yeah. Right. And so what he's saying is without this big transcendent patriotism, this loyalty to something bigger and that's not transactional, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah, empirical, yeah. that's romantic, that's transcendental, that's immaterial and that you are engaging with it by loyalty and honor. He said that is the only way both to reform things yeah, right. And to enjoy things, mm-hmm. right? A fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. Yeah, I agree with that. And if yeah. you do that, you will be on the side of the bleeding heart reformer to the extent to which they're correct mm-hmm. and say, yes, what needs to be changed must be changed. Mm-hmm. And then you'll also be, um, you'll have that fierce discontent. But at the at the end of the day, even in the midst of your protest and your action and your work, you're actually in, in the state of delight. Right. Like right. you can't believe that mm-hmm. the grass is grass and that. A right. woman would touch you and like that yeah. you can see the sunlight and feel it shining on your face mm-hmm. and that it would create a sensation of warmth mm-hmm. and that you could like you're you're caught up in this delight mm-hmm. in the midst of this content. So you become a ha- your happy mm-hmm. warrior. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think I, I think that is profoundly lost and to <laughs> yeah. avoid that is to be an empiricist in the worst kind of way. Yeah. And what will happen is what he says that health will lead the pursuit of health will lead to something always unhealthy. Totally. And that's yeah. true culturally and politically, yeah. but it's yeah. also true personally and psychologically. Yeah. I do not believe we can solve the, the modern mental health crisis mm-hmm. as we call it without rejecting that the, without realizing the pursuit of mental health is going to make our mental health problems worse. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I, th- I, I, well, we can end here. I think that it, the, I believe that 100%. I also think that the way back is, is to, tell people to it's almost like a whole generation has no idea what the orthodoxy is and so mm-hmm. to tell them what that is so that they can then i don't know engage in it themselves and learn about it i feel like the church is trying to figure out ways to tell people about orthodoxy without saying it and it's just annoying just tell people i think like it would have been a lot more clarifying for me when i was younger if somebody would have just said mm-hmm. here's why you need to believe these things and here's what they actually mean rather yeah. than trying to create all these stupid phraseology around it right and trying to get like almost bait and switch trying to get me in and then and then like not answer any of the questions or anything like that and then like come on yeah and so that this is one of the reasons why if you get done with orthodoxy the next book you probably have to read if you liked it is um the abolition of man by c.s lewis oh because the the whole issue here is is that we are making people less romantic we are doing less to build a good emotion in people 
and we're using all these like scientific language and we're we're narrowing everything down to less and less thinking that if we're more empirical, we can be more successful as mm-hmm. we're sensual and right. then we'll be happy. Right. And just the opposite is true. Yeah. The sensual becomes like the reason why goosebumps matter is because you believe that the lover is a woman who is this transcendental creature. Yeah. And because you believe that about the woman, when she touches you, you have this incredible sensual right, experience. Right, right. You have to re-enter the world of magic. You have to yeah. re-enchant the world with transcendental belief mm-hmm. before your transactions really feel great again. Yeah. Yeah. And you know which ones you really should engage in. So yeah. I think Otherwise, you produce what Lewis calls men without chests. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, we got to be done with this with this podcast. Next, we're going to talk about uh, uh, whatever. Chapter six is called The Paradoxes of Christianity. I'm sure this will be interesting. Um, the I'm trying to think about this. The last podcast of 2023. Do I have anything I want to say? Probably not. Nick's going to his meeting. We'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. <laughs>